This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 9th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. Leading a nation is not the job of the president, at least that's how the founders saw it. Gene Healy, vice president of the Cato Institute and author of The Cult of the Presidency, recently discussed the original conception of what an American president is supposed to do at Cato University on Capitol Hill. Odd as it seems to to us today, when we're used to this overbearing, domineering, omnipresent figure in in the presidency, uh, the framers never thought of the president as America's quote-unquote national leader. In fact, in their vision, the very notion of national leadership was threatening. The uh, Federalist Papers literally begin and end, uh, number one in 85 or 86, with warnings about popular demagogues uh, and the dangers of popular leadership. Uh, <clears throat> Federalist One uh, is a warning that throughout history, those who have destroyed republics began by flattering the people. Uh, and then in the final paper, uh, Hamilton warned that should the Constitution not succeed, we may end up with the military despotism of a vicious, a victorious demagogue. Uh, I think both quotes show somewhat how much the framers distrusted the idea of popular leadership. The fact is they didn't believe in Teddy Roosevelt's bully pulpit. The president's, the early president's role was not to go out on the stump and uh, over the heads of Congress and demand support for his programs. His public role rather, as described in the, in the Federalist, was much more defensive. It was to resist public pressure and use the power of the veto to keep Congress from doing anything stupid. One of the key scholars here in the evaluation of the president's changing role is a guy named Jeffrey Toulis, who wrote a wonderful book called The Rhetorical Presidency, describing how dramatically presidential rhetoric has changed over the years. Uh, and he tells us that the early presidents gave about three public speeches a year, believe it or not. Uh, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, and Lincoln held office for 29 years altogether, yet gave a combined total of only 112 public speeches. In 1993 alone, President Clinton gave over 600. In his third State of the Union, Washington wrote that motives of delicacy had deterred him from, quote, introducing any topic which relates to legislative matters, lest it should be suspected that he wished to influence the question before Congress. But even that amount of deference uh, wasn't enough for Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson thought that the practice of, that, that Washington and Adams had followed of delivering the State of the Union speech before Congress assembled was it smacked of the British king's speech from the throne, and it was anti-Republican in the small r sense. Uh, so Jefferson inaugurated a new tradition of delivering the annual message in writing. And for 112 years, the Jeffersonian tradition held uh, until the power-hungry Woodrow Wilson delivered his first State of the Union before Congress. Now, all this goes to say, <clears throat> Strange as it is pictured today, that in the early years of the Republic, the norm was mostly that the president was supposed to keep his mouth shut, which is not how presidents see it today. Uh, Barack Obama is the omnipresent president.
president. He's over every treadmill every time you go to the gym. Six months into his presidency, the Politico reported he'd already uttered more than half a million words in public. And uh, in his first year in office, he gave uh, 158 issues, interviews and 411 speeches. You know, Hugo Chavez, uh, Venezuela's strongman president, has his own show called Hello, President. It airs every Sunday, but there's no, there's no set time limit. It can go on for as long as Chavez feels like talking, which has been up to eight hours on particular occasions. Uh, and he'll go on the show. There's a really good documentary about this uh, on PBS. Uh, if any of you get uh, Netflix on demand, you can get this, uh, this documentary, um, which is, I believe, called Hello, President. And uh, so Chavez will go on the show for up to eight hours, singing, insulting his enemies, giving shout-outs to Fidel Castro, uh, and even on one occasion de describing this, this bout of diarrhea that he had while filming the show. Uh, you kind of have to wonder how long it is before our, our presidents get something like this, and, and would they even need it? Uh, in, just, in just one week last September, after all, Barack Obama made his third appearance on 60 Minutes, gave a major speech on the financial crisis the next day, and made a record five talk show appearances the following Sunday. And on the eighth day, he did Letterman. Uh, well, obviously, more important, I think this is illustrative, uh, but more important than the words the president uses are the powers that the president exercises. And just as the president, the early president, had a limited public role, he also had very limited powers. He wasn't supposed to be a grand imperial figure. He wasn't supposed to exercise vast unilateral war powers. Uh, George Washington didn't go around calling himself uh, everybody's commander-in-chief. Most of the time when he referred to the office he held, he referred to himself as the chief magistrate. Pretty humble title. And he didn't think his authority as commander-in-chief meant he could break whatever laws he liked so long as he did it in the name of national security. He wasn't even sure that he had the power on his own to launch offensive action against hostile Indian tribes. As he put it in, 1793, quote, the Constitution vests the power of declaring war in Congress. Therefore, no offensive expedition of importance can be undertaken until after they shall have deliberated upon the subject and authorized such a measure. Now, it's true that there in the 19th century, there were hints of the modern presidency to come. You do see some of the phenomenon that many of us have grown to know and hate in the modern presidency sort of foreshadowed in 19th century presidents. Uh, Andrew Jackson, for example, showed that the president could be a popular, popular leader uh, and had special powers because he had, quote, the mandate of the people. Uh, but even Jackson rarely gave public speeches or spoke directly to the public. And when he did, he these were very controversial claims that, that he made at the time. Um, and uh, when he did exercise these powers and make these claims, it was actually to, 
to decentralize power, as with the veto of the Second Bank of the United States. Uh, James K. Polk you showed that the president could exploit the separation of army command and power to authorize war enshrined in the Constitution uh, in order to start a war and get Congress to go along afterwards. Uh, Lincoln, as a young congressman, condemned Polk's war, the Mexican-American War, but later as president, he showed that during the secession crisis that the, the president could use his war powers to reshape the country, and he used war powers probably as vast as those exercised by George W. Bush. So I wouldn't deny uh, the, the, the relevance of these points, but it says something, I think, that after Lincoln, America entered another long era of congressional dominance uh, ruled by, uh, by these wonderfully for forgettable presidents. I mean, very few of us could name all the presidents in order between Grant and McKinley. Gene Healy is a vice president at the Cato Institute and author of The Cult of the Presidency. You can get your free ebook copy at Cato.org.